joining me for the show for a little discussion about what it's like to be a private investigator. My guest, like myself, is very passionate about what she does, and before I go into detail about that, I just want to say that I personally admire her for being so brave in a field that often demonizes people like ourselves. It's not for the faint of heart. Um, Hi, Heather, and thanks for having me on the show. I started out many, many years ago as a as an investigative reporter. Um, that was my focus in college and what I had always planned to do. Um, I spent 25 years in every aspect of media, from newspaper to radio to television to um, all other forms of print and, and digital. And eventually decided that I was, I probably needed a little bit more for my soul. I think you know what that means. And it just maybe I hadn't quite yet found what it was I wanted to do, but it had something to do with investigative reporting. And um, in 2010, and I'll tell you uh, the irony of, of you asking me to do the show today um, is that my work as a PI started 10 years ago today. Wow. Um, it was December. Yes. And you didn't know that. I don't think you even knew I that. I had no idea. That's crazy. Um, it's the story that led me to become a PI. Um, on December 28th of 2010, I was the general manager for three radio stations in a town called Big Spring, Texas. And uh, again, I said 25 years in the industry. Um, I had gone down to Big Spring and, and from my home in the Chicagoland area and had moved down there just two months prior to take over these stations that were, were having you know some issues. And about two months, two and a half months into my tenure there as station manager, um, the phone rang one day. It was right around almost to this exact minute, maybe a couple hours, maybe two. About quarter to three, quarter to four. It was quarter to four, I think. And um, it was the sheriff of a small town about 30 miles east of Big Spring called Colorado City. And my news director was out that day covering a regional sports tournament. And so I, being an investigative reporter at heart, picked up the phone to cover the desk. And it was Sheriff Toombs over in Sea City. And the first words out of his mouth were, Erica, we need your help. 
We have a little girl that's been missing for two days, and she was just reported missing by her mom. And I have to tell you, of all the calls I've ever received in my life, that one, for some reason, stopped me cold. Um, I think it probably had something to do with hearing that she'd already been gone for upwards of 36 to 48 hours, and no one had realized my hinky meter jumped through the roof instantly. And I said, literally to him, fax me the details. We're going live now. So I broke in. You know, this is breaking news. We have a little girl from over in Sea City who's disappeared. Um, we're just getting details into the newsroom from the station or, you know, from the police station. Um this is her name. Her name is Haley Dunn. She is 13 years old. This is what they're telling us she was last seen wearing. Um, stay tuned for details on our, you know, 4 o'clock, 4.30, and 5 o'clock news. I said right there that, you know, as, as station manager, I decided we were going to be covering this every half hour until this girl was found. So that lasted for a few hours, I think, until up. I think I did an extended 6 and 6.30 that night. And then... After I left the station, um, I drove straight home, uh, you know, I to my hotel. I'd only been there for a couple months, and I was still house hunting. Um, my family was actually still back up north, so it was me and me alone. My husband and daughter weren't even down there yet. And I had nothing but free time on my hands, which was very dangerous. So what I pretty much did was go back to the, to the hotel, make a quick peanut butter sandwich, and throw on some tennis shoes and jeans. And before I even knew what I was doing, I was driving through town looking for this child. And the reason that the sheriff had called our stations 30 miles away, there were, there were a couple reasons. Number one, um, they didn't know uh, where Haley had been those 36 to 48 hours previous. So they wanted to cover a vast region, um, especially because of the interstates. And we were the largest city closest to the town from where she disappeared. That was number one. Number two, I think that moment that they took that report, they already had someone in mind as to who could be behind this. And that person um, has ties to property in Big Spring. So even though this girl was missing from 30 miles away, my instincts kept telling me just stay in Big Spring. And, um, that's what I did. And so this went on for, I mean, this just continued the next day. Um, everybody picked it up within a few days to a week. Um, Nancy Grace picked it up and that's when this case exploded. And for the next several weeks, uh, I believe into maybe a couple months, this case was covered almost on an, a nightly basis by the Nancy Grace show. And they actually had satellite trucks parked outside um, the family home for about two and a half months, I believe. Um, so this was, this case blew up quickly because of the circumstances. This, this little girl vanishes and Nobody even knows she's gone for two days. What the heck is going on here? Um, and by that weekend, I believe it was a Tuesday uh, that this occurred. And 
by Saturday, we had, I believe it was upwards of 3,000 volunteers, um, kind of all showing up in the Dairy Queen parking lot in Colorado City, Texas. The city had donated a building um, to create a search center. And there was a $10,000 donation made by a, a local company to get this search up and running. And that donation to me came into play a little bit later. But um, at any rate, by that weekend, we had a an organized search and search center in the running. We had people from the Laura Recovery Center scheduled to come out and train those searches, searchers on how to conduct grid searches, what to do if we find evidence, that kind of stuff. This was all new to me. I spent 25 years in media and probably 10 of those on and off as an investigative reporter. So I've done plenty in the field. I've covered everything from executions to protests to the KKK. Um, this was just, I've covered missing persons. Um, but never had I done it on this side where I was suddenly being trained as a searcher. And eventually I became a search captain for the Howard County team, which uh, is over in Big Spring. We would coordinate our search areas and maps with law enforcement. And of course, you know, as you know, you learn so much as you're going through these motions that suddenly you realize, wait a minute, I kind of know what I'm doing now. After two and a half years of doing this, I know what I'm doing. Um, fast forward a couple months into Haley's disappearance and um, another search captain had contacted me and said that uh, Haley's father was at a, a trade show. It's called the Rattlesnake Roundup uh, in West Texas and that he was passing out flyers and that he wanted to meet with some of us searchers to see if we had found anything, maybe any updates. And he wanted to talk with me too because I guess he wanted to hear about some of the media updates. What are you all hearing from law enforcement? We all met with, with Haley's father, Clint, that evening. It was in February of 2011. And that was my first time meeting Mr. Dunn. And we sat down together and started talking. And I kind of started interviewing him for this and realizing this man has no idea what happened to his child. He has not slept in two and a half months. He has a three-month-old baby or a four- or five-month-old baby at home. Um, with his new fiance. And I'm just going to be very frank because I believe this was a factor in all of this. But dad had a limited high school education. He had never used a computer. He had no idea how to create a missing flyer. He was handicapped by some of these things that we we who have high school diplomas and, and high school or college educations take for granted. And it occurred to me at this time that this man needed an exorbitant amount of help if he was ever going to find his daughter. And so I kind of took a deep breath and went, all right, Lord, I don't know what you just got me into but there is no way I can keep looking this man in this eye and not do everything I can humanly do to give him answers. And that began my 
10-year friendship with Clint Dunn. And it has taken so many twists and turns over the years. Um, I started out, you know, assisting him as a searcher in local media. Um, a few years down the road, um, he approached me. Well, by then, I, I had actually started an organization in 2012. Let me back up. Um, as a result of Haley's case and the unexpected murder of, of a dear family friend back home, um, I decided that I had an opportunity to take everything I'd learned about missing and murdered persons and my 25 years of media and marketing experience and build a platform that didn't exist before. And that's when Victims News Online was born in November of 2012. And for the listeners, tell us where to find that. Uh, the website is victimsnewsonline.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Um, VNO, as I call it, uh, is a an online newspaper telling the stories of the missing, murdered, exploited, and abused from the perspective of the families and the victims and the advocates. That's so important. I'm sorry to jump in, but that is so important. It, it really is because a lot of times there's information that they're not telling you in the media and you know with the family there, there are some things that they can't talk about to uh, maintain the integrity of the case but there are also things that that people need to know and and I think that's a great platform for that to be done. Thank you. Um, one of the things that we learned very early on by developing VNO was that we quickly became the source for correcting false information. Um, the police would put out a flyer. And I'm sure you've seen this a thousand times. It would get distributed on social media. And then all of a sudden, a well-meaning volunteer organization for missing persons would slap their logo on that flyer and change the tip line number to their number instead of the PD's number. And then all of a sudden, tips would start being called into a non-trained volunteer organization who doesn't know how to handle those tips, and the information was getting diverted away from law enforcement or PIs. Right, and people don't understand, too, that by doing that, you're really putting yourself in danger of being charged or at least threatened to be charged with obstruction. Correct. Another thing we found was that Families were putting their own cell phone and home phone numbers on homemade missing persons flyers, and that was happening in the cases of adult missing and habitual runaways where the police are not as inclined to take a report right away. Um, they Police tend to look at those cases as, as what I call the, the non-existent or the bogus 24-hour rule. That is the rule that is quoted by every lazy law enforcement official who refuses to take a missing persons report um, because they are banking on the statistics of 80 to 90 percent of all missing persons cases result in the person coming home safe and well. They are never banking on the 15, 10 to 20 percent, so to speak, of the cases that are legitimate where um the missing person is a victim of foul play, has been the victim of an abduction, 
um, a partner domestic situation, a trafficking situation, et cetera, et cetera. And when police officers play that statistics game, it tends to get real victims killed because families are turned away. Friends are turned away when they show up at the police station and say, uh, you know, here, here's a great example. Uh, Billy Smolinski out of uh, Waterbury, Connecticut, um, was an adult male who disappeared, um, I believe, 14, 15 years ago now. I, I have worked that case as an advocate. I, I can't wait to start tackling it as a PI, you know, hopefully soon. Um, and this was a grown man who allegedly walked away from everything, including his dog, to go up north to look for some car parts and was never heard from again. Never told his family, never told his friends, never told his boss, um, only told the neighbor he never liked and left his beloved dog in the neighbor of the animal he didn't, or the, his left his beloved dog in the care of the neighbor he didn't like, nor did he trust. Okay, that's suspicious. Correct, correct. Um, when his family attempted to report him missing, the neighbor stepped in and said, oh, no, 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 no. He said he was going up north for a few days to look at car parts. What did the police say? Oh, well, then if he doesn't show up, you know what's coming next. In a few days, give us a call and then we'll take that missing persons report. Well, that may have gotten Billy Smolinski killed. This could have meant the difference between finding a living Billy Smolinski excuse me, a living Billy Smolenski or finding a deceased Billy Smolenski. And here we are now, 14, 15 years later, still looking for him. Um, when, when police officers, desk sergeants, patrol officers, traffic cops, the ones who are called to meet with the families when, when somebody calls 911 or an emergency number to, to take a report, or the ones who are sitting at the desk when a loved one comes up to take that, you know, and ask for that report, that person wearing the badge has a decision to make at that point in time. Am I going to gamble with this person's life and cross my fingers that this is one of the 80% of the cases where they'll come home just fine and turns out they were in a hotel with some chick for a few days? Or am I going to take this report because I don't realize at the time that this man is in a very um, difficult and on, a, on and off again abusive relationship with someone who has a substance abuse issue. And here we are 15 years later, still wondering what happened to Billy Smolenski. So to kind of to go back um, to Haley's case, um, I, I ended up. Like I said, becoming a victim's advocate, taking victim's news online and and using that platform along with social media and all of our media connections um, to not only tell the stories of the families from their person, of the victims from the family's perspectives, to get the information right, to clarify when media inadvertently gets it wrong, because I don't think they maliciously get it wrong. I think they just rush to tell the story and sometimes they don't confirm facts. And that does happen in journalism, unfortunately. I have two. I have two. I, I, 
I was told by, and I, you know what? I'm going to say this real quick. I was told by a publisher many years ago to do to to do a breaking report on the Holly Bobo case because we had searchers on the ground on that case, and I put a one or two sentence snippet out breaking news searchers tell us that remains related to holly bobo have been found um to this day i am crucified for that decision and should be i made i made the biggest mistake of of my moral career and that was someone else push me to promote a breaking news tip before i had personally confirmed it and by doing so, I caused pain to that family. And if they ever hear this, I want them to know how truly sorry I am. And if I could go back and undo that moment in time, I would do so in a Girl, everything you've said, like, I feel you. Uh, same thing. I got a phone call six o'clock in the morning from my assistant who had received a phone call from a close friend of the victim in this particular case. It was actually uh, the Crystal Rogers case in Kentucky. And, you know, I'm half asleep and we've been following this case for years. And she wakes me up. She says, they found, they found Crystal. They found Crystal. And I said, well, how do you, I, I said, how do you know? And she said, well, so-and-so called me and, and it's confirmed and FBI is, is raiding these houses and this is blah, blah, blah. And it sounded legit to me. Mm-hmm. And, and I went online and I confirmed that the FBI was in fact raiding these houses. Oh God. Suspects. You know, oh, God. So I see, right. So I see FBI is raiding the houses, blah, blah, blah. There was actually, uh, there was actually remains found. Um, around the same time, which kind of, you know, made it even more, seemed even more legit. But girl, I just, man, I got it. I got it hard from every angle. That didn't even sound good. But I mean, like, seriously, people were like, just crucifying me. You take that down right now. It's not true. And um, I just felt like such an ass. And especially, you know, not so much not so much from the people and, and especially when uh, I ended up having to take it down. I, I gave it a little bit of time because I'm like, okay, no, maybe, maybe it'll prove to be true. Maybe it'll be, you know, maybe it'll end up being true. And, you know, after, I don't know, an hour, maybe two hours and not seeing any confirmation anywhere else. I was like, okay, you know, I should, I guess I'll go ahead and take it down. And also the family, um, I had messaged the brother of the victim and I said, Hey, I put this post out there saying that, you know, Crystal's remains had been found and um, people are saying that it's a false reporting and, you know, could you just confirm? And he says, it's not true. And and he asked me to take it down. I'm like, okay, all right, I'll take it down. And, and he wasn't mad. He didn't seem mad about it. Um, but of course it's like you said, it's like, okay, this family is dealing with so much. It's like, I didn't, I didn't mean, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was to add to their problems in that moment. And uh, I just felt like, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm here to help people. I'm here to be a victim advocate. I'm here to help the families, not to cause them more stress and more pain. Mm-hmm. So it just, it was really hard for me to um, live that down. Not so much because everybody else was crucifying me, but because also, you know, of course I was crucifying myself as well. So. Exactly. And yeah, you know, it's funny. I'm glad you said that because, um, those lovable trolls online who love to, 
love to break down every word we use and dissect every every breath we take to prove that we are evil demons out there um, with the sole mission of destroying families and, and, and harming, harming victims. Um, they jump on those, those rare moments where we get it wrong. And they, that's, you know, this, that example that I used about Holly, I hadn't thought about it in years. Uh, It's in my Rolodex of don't you ever do this again. But I have moved past it because I forgave myself because I know I'm human and I err. Um, But people who haven't forgiven me are the four or five trolls who feel that it is their responsibility to police every second of my life and my career and to make sure that they continuously bring up this error in judgment from nearly a decade ago that they don't even realize I spent more time beating myself up on than anyone else. Look, you made a mistake and chances are before you take your last breath, you're probably going to make some more. I mean, the fact of the matter is that we are all human and we're trying to do good things, but you know, I mean, even law enforcement, you know, they don't always get it right. In fact, I hate to be the one to say this, but oftentimes they don't get it right. And that's why we're called in. (laughs) And that's why we're called in. (laughs) Right, right. And so, I mean, the point I'm trying to make here is that, you know, in those, in those situations, you know, I think you and I are both humble enough to, um, in those situations where we know that we have erred, I think we, we face that and we apologize and we, and, you know, I mean, we don't pretend to be perfect. We don't claim to be perfect. Uh, we're just human, just like law enforcement, just like anybody else. And they all make mistakes. So anyway, um, back to what you were saying, I feel like we got way off topic and you probably had, you, you probably had a few more things to talk about in the Haley Dunn case. So, uh, I don't know if you want to kind of direct back and. Yeah, I'll, I'll go back to that and kind of wrap up kind of how I got involved. But, um, uh, you know, after kind of partnering with their dad, launching Victims News Online, um, I realized that I was being trained by a couple of different organizations as a victim's advocate. And so Clint had called one day and needed some help with something. And I said, Hey, let me ask you a question. Do you have an advocate? No. What's an advocate? I'm like, Oh my God. Oh my God. You poor thing. I said, listen, if you need an advocate to help you fight things and to get you some of the resources that you need to help find Haley or, you know, after 2013, when she was located, um, to help get justice for Haley, then say the word. And he was like, yeah, I need an advocate. <laughs> okay. Um, that went on for about, I don't know, two or three years. Um, and during that time, I had developed a rapport with a man named Max Sanford, who was the original private investigator on Haley's case. He was brought in by Haley's mother back in 2011 and 12, I believe. Um, and he originally worked the case. Well, he have, will not speak for my boss, but I will say that some things cropped up that caused him to resign his involvement with that case. I don't think he felt comfortable um, working in that, in that capacity on this case anymore. 
and he stepped back from it. And um, that was around the time that he and I kind of got to know each other pretty well. Um, and I started helping cover some of his other cases, a big case out of uh, Spring, Texas, the um, Ali Lowitzer disappearance. He was he was the PI on that case for many years. And so we really developed a friendship on, on Haley's case and some others. Well, one day, Max Sanford had called me and uh, Clint Dunn and I just happened to be sitting there talking um, about the case. And the three of us kind of got on the phone together. And Clint said, hey, let me ask you a question, Mac. What would it take for Erica to get her PI license? <laughs> I need to solve this case. And you you dropped my case. Um, he wasn't, you know, Clint's PI. He, he had been brought in by the mom. And so he said, well, she's got to do this amount of years of internship and dot, dot, dot. And, well, she's already got this part under her belt from her other her other work. So, well, let's just go ahead and get her the hours she needs, the training she needs, and we'll get her license. Hell yeah. Um, That's awesome. August of 2018, um, my license arrives in the mail one day at the house, and I call Clint Dunn, and he picks up the phone and says, hey, what's up? And I said, you officially have a PI. <laughs> so... When I say I've been on the case since day one and that my my role has evolved um, throughout the years, that's no joke. I mean, I I'd never known this family. I had never met this man in my life. And all of the sudden, um, I get thrust into this situation I never saw coming. When God calls you, he calls you. Years later, yes. I'm sitting here 10 years to the day, um, I guess, discussing this with you and realizing that the investigative reporter in me always knew there was something more to be done. Um, the way I was raised and, and by whom I was raised always taught me that there was more to give. And somehow, some way, I managed to find um, the ability to do something I love so deeply and so passionately um, and get paid for it sometimes. Um, and I say sometimes because I'm a little bit different than other PIs. I, I self-fund every missing persons investigation. I refuse to accept payment for a missing persons case. And my reason for that is, as a mother, I cannot imagine asking a parent to put a price on their child's life. If a parent comes to me and says, my child is missing, and I know that mm, standard is five grand for a divorce case or a cheating spouse case, and well, insurance case might be a retainer of 10 grand, okay. You tell me, Heather, excuse my French, where the hell do I start on a missing kid? Where's my where's my bottom line negotiation? And, and let me tell you kind of my my viewpoint on that, actually. Um, and and people see me working all the time and then and then they see me struggling financially and they're like, what the hell? <laughs> like, um, first of all, I don't think you understand that my job is not a job. It's my life. I work my job 
uh, my passion, you know, 24 seven, if somebody calls me at 3am, I answer. Um, so I don't clock in and out. I literally work around the clock. But aside from that, you know, I, I look at it as it's my purpose. It's my calling. God called me to do this. And when, and, and I do feel like God puts cases in front of me, I, I'll pray about it. And sometimes I, I don't take every case, but you know, I feel like when God puts a case in front of me, if the victim or the vic- the victim's family or whatnot, if they cannot afford to pay me, I'm not going to be like, well, sorry, you're on your own. You know, I, I look at it as it's my purpose. I don't make an hourly wage. Exactly. I do have an hourly wage that I, that I quote, like if I'm doing surveillance or, you know, in the field work, cr- criminal defense stuff like that, you know, um, I do quote an hourly rate and I do ask for a retainer. Um, but in, you know, cases like cold cases and stuff like that, if I'm called to work a case, it's not about, you know, I don't have an hourly rate. I don't have a salary. I don't have a retainer. I don't look at it as I just trust God, you called me to work this case and I trust you to provide for me. That's it. Same. And and let me say this. Um, my philosophy is my own. And I know that there are some PIs, especially male PIs out there, um, because I'm finding that most of our female PIs have a pro bono aspect to their work involving missing, murdered persons, uh, exploited individuals, trafficking victims, cold cases and such. Um, and I'm noticing that, that the majority of that pro bono work is, is done, to my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, um, by the female private investigators out there. Um, there are some great PI firms like Client Investigations, KIC out of North Texas, they have an entire pro bono division that's devoted to missing persons. Love them for that. So, but I, I get these guys who will say, um, you know, Erica, I'm getting a little tired of your God complex out there. I'm really tired of your martyr complex. You're, you're, oh, I don't charge for missing persons. So um, that makes me better than all of you. No, it doesn't. Um, just like I have mouths to feed and responsibilities and bills to pay, so do they. And it is not my place to get in between any man and his meal. Um, however, well, you know what I get a lot, actually, I feel like people don't believe me. That too. That too. You know what? It's funny. Somebody just, uh, there was a case, um, a local case here recently. And a friend of mine, someone I have known for 40 years, told that victim on Facebook, that victim's family on Facebook, Call my friend Erica. I think she charges around 300 an hour for missing person work. And I sent that man a message and I said, you have no clue. No clue. I don't put a price on a missing person. I don't charge for any missing person's case ever and never will. Um, well, how do you make money? That's none of your business. I have other work. I'm a PI. Um, you don't need to worry about it. What you need to do is go back and remove that shit before that family thinks that I'm not willing to help them because they may not have a big enough bank account. Get that crap off social media. You're hurting my reputation. That's what I was angry about. 
and not my reputation as a PI. My reputation is a pro bono PI. I want these families to know that Erica Morse takes cases for free. And that's not me trying to take money out of somebody's pocket. It's because I grew up in a situation where I had a sibling who was gone from our lives for many years due to a civil custody dispute. Um, it led us to start the portion of our paper called Missing to Me. And it covers non-traditional missing persons cases where the siblings may not have grown up knowing they had a sibling. Maybe they didn't get introduced to that sibling because of a custody case. Um, homeless individuals, people who aren't, that, that the police refuse to take reports on, individuals with mental health issues and substance abuse who have chosen to stay in the system or, or utilize shelters and, and service programs and social services, which for privacy purposes, keep those family members from ever knowing that they're actually alive and safe. So we have that, that section of the website missing to me, and it's for those non-traditional cases that law enforcement doesn't consider a missing person. I have members of my own family who have called me a fraud for claiming that I never had a sister who was missing. Bullshit. Show me one photo of me and her together in 12 years of my childhood, and I'll tell you it doesn't exist. So I, it, that's the reason I choose not to do it. It's because I couldn't help my dad when I was a kid get to the bottom of his situation. But I do, as an adult, control the decision to never charge a parent in this situation. That is not me thinking I'm better than anyone else. It is my personal moral and value set that that has caused me to make that call. That's it. Well, I think that's great. And, you know, there have been situations where I've literally just told, you know, the victim's family or whatnot that, you know, if you feel that I'm doing a good job and you want to donate to the cause, like, feel free to do that. And you know, and, and more or less, like, in those cases, they would just help me with, say, expenses, um, but never a profit. And because I wouldn't feel good about a profit. I said that. Sorry to interject. I'm so passionate about what I'm about to say. I said that one time to a family. The family, when when I did my intake with them in Texas, um, the, the family that was actually very well off had, had said to me, point blank, why are you doing this? I said, what do you mean? He said, why are you doing this for free when it is very clear to you we can afford to put you on retainer? I said, I don't know. How much is your grandson's life worth? He just looked at me and I said, exactly. Do you write me a check for a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand? Where do we start? And he said, oh my God, I never thought of that. And I said, let me find your grandson. And then if you decide you want to write me a check afterwards, great, fantastic. Make a donation to our organization. I'll take it. Thanks. Um, that family, when they met with the sheriff's department the next morning, the SO said, you know, or they, they told him they had a PI and they're like, wait a minute, 
uh, be careful. You know, we don't want this PI charging you out the butt when we can find the, you know, we can find him for free kind of a thing. And the family says, no, no, no. She's offered to do this for free and just told us that if she finds our grandson and brings him home alive and well, we can make a donation afterwards. You know what they said? Thank us no. We needed to be aware of that fraudulent attempt going on in our community. We will keep an eye on this woman because it sounds like she's trying to negotiate the price of your grandson's life. They accused the very thing I refused to do. And you know what that is? That is male law enforcement officers in their 50s and 60s with pot bellies as big as Texas who are threatened by a woman who will actually get off her ass, go out in the field, bring a child home from a drug house, a trap house, a flop house, wherever, their friend's basement. Because they don't want to take the time to get the probable cause to do the affidavit to get the search warrant. Right. And see, that's, that's the thing that, you know, I don't understand why it's so hard to get law enforcement to cooperate with us when, you know, in a lot of cases, we're able to get information that people are not willing to share with them. And they should want, I would think, you know, if they really do want the truth or they really do want to find these people, I would think that they would want to utilize us in that way. Mm -hmm. But they don't. And and I'm surprised. I, I'm actually, I'm not surprised anymore. But, you know, when I first started doing this, I just, I was surprised at the resistance. I couldn't believe that they, that they wouldn't want my help with these things. Let me tell you where I am at statistically with our win-loss ratio right now. Um, and, and I'm bringing this up for a reason. I don't, I don't count, you know, all these wins, but I, I know this one statistic. Um, we have participated in the last 10 years, our team, because what we've done is we've kind of merged it now, you know, Max, Max company, uh, Pathfinders and Pathfinder investigations out of Houston. Um, he's still the agency owner and I still work for him, but he allows me the, the freedom to do these pro bono cases. Um, you know, as long as I follow the agency standards and VNO victims news online is kind of like that softball, press part, so to speak, that tells the story while I'm doing the investigative part. But um, I, was, I just lost my, my thought. You were just telling me about it a second ago. Um, oh, the, the win-loss ratio. So we have participated in hundreds, I mean, hundreds of cases. Um, I've covered thousands as a reporter. But in the four cases that I and my team have worked side by side with law enforcement on or the district attorney's office. In all four cases, we already have convictions. Wow. In every case where law enforcement refuses to work with myself or my team, we don't have arrests or trial dates or convictions. Yep. I mean, what does that tell you? And one of those cases was as recently as this summer. There was a case out of North Carolina, and this happened to be the sibling of a dear friend. And it was horrific. This was a woman who was a sex worker who was taken at midnight 
on what she thought was going to be just a regular call with a regular John. And it turns out this was a premeditated plan to, I believe, rape, torture, and kill a sex worker. It took me and my team three days to give a location of where should be searched. The family found a cell phone ping. Uh, well, this family got into her an account and found the, the did the find my phone app and they called us and they gave us the, the GPS coordinates and we realized that there was only one house in that cul-de-sac that that GPS was coming back to. And I called that police department three days in and said, this is where the phone is. I'm guessing this is where your girl is. Or she's in that big ass ravine right behind the house. It took about a month or two for them to get their ducks in a row. Um, but they they started working on the search warrants and probable cause affidavits and all that within a few days of that phone call. We turned everything over to them. They made the arrest a couple months later. Hmm. Guess guess which homeowner or or home uh, uh yeah, homeowner was uh was was arrested. That would be the guy where we said the phone was all along. So if if law enforcement will just freaking work with us, guess what? It's just like you said. The best thing I can say to a witness on the streets is, don't worry, I'm not a cop. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care what you're smoking. I don't care what you're drinking. This one piece of information, and I'll be on my way, and you'll never see me again. Exactly. We're there for one thing, one thing only. We're not there to bust them, and so they'll talk to us. I mean, but there are just so many people that, you know, if we we show up wearing a uniform and carrying a badge, they're never going to tell us what they know. Correct. So, and for... For police officers and detective bureaus to look at us as either enemies or elementary school versions or wannabe cops or whatever whatever they're calling us, um, I am as idiots who aren't utilizing every potential resource available to them for the purposes of solving a case. Nailed it. We are witnesses, essentially. We are investigators, but we are witnesses. We go in. We provide video evidence. We provide uh, sometimes digital evidence. Um, right. And we put ourselves we put ourselves in harm's way as well. It's like, you know, they don't yes. appreciate, you oh know, they, they have the umbrella of the of the police you know of the of being law enforcement they have they have that umbrella that safety net us it's just us and we're out there by ourselves in the field in deep and and we don't even have them to back us and it's such a lonely place to be (laughs) yes it is and when we call them for help what do they tell us you're the pi investigate it yourself oh god i mean 
what what they tell yeah I mean they tell that and, <laughs> and they just they just laugh they don't believe anything they don't believe anything no. you tell you tell them you're being threatened they don't believe you they laugh it off they think you're just a drama queen or you're just making yes. shit up and it's just it's awful it's really it's really awful you know Erica I am so amazed at how similar our experiences and our viewpoints seem to be we both have these like mother cases, so to speak, that changed our uh-huh. lives and showed us our purpose in life. And let me tell you just a little bit about how it all started for me. And it's really funny that you mentioned Holly Bobo case because that was my mother case. Oh gosh, I'm so yeah. sorry. Yeah, well, no, it's I'm fine. Sorry. I mean, um, in 2011, I volunteered in the Holly Bobo case and she was, you know, from Parsons, Tennessee, which wasn't far away from where I lived. Uh, She was a college student who had gone missing from her own backyard, as you know, and the case ended up blowing up into this huge, into this huge high profile case, as you know. And of course, that was one of the, you know, that was one of the accusations made to me. I was, I was a attention whore. I was just trying to get famous on this case. It was because Whitney Duncan was her cousin who... I'm sorry, Erica, but I had no idea who Whitney Duncan even was at that time. And honestly, if it wasn't for the Holly Bobo case to this day, I probably still wouldn't. But that's just me. And I'm I'm nothing against Whitney Duncan. I mean, she's talented and she's beautiful and all that stuff. But I had no idea who she was. She's not Miranda Lambert. I mean, come on. So Mm -hmm. anyway. (laughs) um, I have to tell you something. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, so. okay. Well, thank you. Point made. Point made. I have made. no idea. I was like, if it's a missing person. Perfect. If it's somebody in the arena, the community, I've been doing this a decade. I know yeah. most no. names of the real players. Perfect. So. Perfect. She's, she's, a, she's a, you know, she's a country music star on some level uh she was on survivor she was actually on survivor later you know after holly uh went missing and everything and i can't remember if she'd been found yet or not but anyway so she's you know she's a a bit of a celebrity but i didn't know that then and yes i did come to nashville to pursue a music career so i can see where people might line that up but it's just so it, it it's so disheartening that people look for reasons to minimize or completely discredit any good that you might actually try to do. And Mm -hmm. here I was, you know, trying to do something good and just getting torn to shreds from every direction for, you know, all sorts of bogus reasons. But, you know, like you, I got involved pretty quickly. Um, about two weeks after she went missing is when I got involved. And it's before I ever could have known how big that case would be. Now, I'm not going to go too deep into the details about that case because it's a podcast in and of itself. It's a huge case. And and I was involved for, you know, five years and it's just, it's a lot, a lot happened. There's a lot to tell and I might just have to have a whole podcast about it someday, but just not today. But it was during that time in which I was searching for answers in her disappearance and ultimately her murder that I discovered my passion in my heart for this line of work. Mm -hmm. Through that case, I made many deep lifelong connections 
Some turned into professional contacts like law enforcement and other private investigators. Specifically, I met my close friend and mentor, Sheila Waisaki, which is interesting because you have the same sort of situation where you had met mm-hmm. Mac and, Mac. and yeah, and developed a relationship with him that kind of led to you becoming a PI. Well, that's kind of what happened with me. I met Sheila. Miss um, Waisaki was hired by the victim's family about a year or so. Yeah, about a year or so into the case. And I can still remember to this day receiving the phone call from Holly's mother asking if I would meet with Miss Waisaki and give her every piece of information that I had gathered up to that point. So about three years, I'm sorry, about a year and a half worth of information. Of course, I agreed, and it's history from there. That moment changed my life forever. Sheila gave me the confidence and encouragement that I needed to pursue my newly discovered dream of being a cold case private investigator. And about three years later, when the men that I had been pointing at since two weeks in, after the victim had gone missing, they were indicted. And that's when I decided I'm going to do this because I might actually be pretty good at it. Yes! (laughs) That's why I do it. I was like, wow, you know, first case ever even trying to solve and boom, that's pretty damn good. I'm good at this. Yes, I get it. (laughs) So I finished my bachelor's degree in legal studies. I got my license in Tennessee and Kentucky, and I started my own private investigative company, which I later expanded into fugitive recovery. Then I went on to complete my master's degree in criminal justice. If it sounds like I'm bragging, maybe I am just You should be. (laughs) Why? Because prior to 2011, I had no idea what my purpose was in life. (laughs) Me either. I was just surviving. And now I have a reason to get up every morning. There's a fire in my soul for justice and truth, and people depend on me, and I refuse to let them down. So on that note, I have a question for you. Is being a private investigator everything that you'd hoped it would be, and what are some of the challenges? You already mentioned some of them, but what are some, what are, what are some other challenges that you face? Well, you may. Um, is it, I thought it was going to be. Are you Jewish? No, 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 no. That's just a big fat no. Um, No one, I think, unless you are just somebody who wanted to be a cop and couldn't be for some reason, I think that people who get into the PI business do it for very personal reasons. Um, And so is it what I expected Kind of yes, kind of no. It still feels someday like I'm just in my now 28th year of doing investigative reporting um, because it's still observe, you know, and report. Um, Instead of writing an article, I'm writing a report, you know, um, just a detailed uh, field surveillance report or update on an interview or something like that. (sighs) What are some of the challenges I face? In the industry, huh? Beyond um, beyond law enforcement, what about law enforcement? Yeah, beyond law enforcement. Um, oh, how about when you combine threats from law enforcement? Uh, that's where it gets fun. right. Right, you you get it from both directions. It's like it's like you're hated from both sides. It's like law enforcement hates you, and of course, the people you're trying to prove 
did whatever, you know, they're after you too. So it's like, oh my God, we're not making any friends over here. <laughs> and anybody who thinks that doesn't happen to a female PI is living with blinders. Yeah, it's a very lonely job and people don't understand. You can't tell anybody what you worked on that day. Um, you know, you have to keep it all confidential. You come home and everybody's like, what's wrong? I can't talk about it. You know, why are you mad? I can't talk about it. And, you know, and then your phone's dinging with 30,000 threats from idiots and, and psychos. And you're like, oh my God, I just want to go take a hot bath because, you know, I can't talk about it. Um, yeah, you know, the, the threats, the biggest challenge has been, I'll tell you what, the biggest I'm not going to call them threats even. I'm going to call them people who have decided that it is their job on this earth to police private investigators online in missing persons cases. Mm-hmm. Or to, or to judge, or to judge us. It's like, okay, um, what does anything that I did 20 years ago, or who I was married to, or who I dated, or what I did for a living, what does any of that have to do with this case, with my credibility as a private investigator? I could not agree with you more. Um, you know, my divorce records... And custody records have ended up online, um, social media. Um, there, <laughs> there are allegations that I did not raise my child. What the um, hell does that have to do I, with anything, though? I did, even if I didn't. Um, what does it have to do? But I did. Right. It doesn't make the people, it doesn't make <sighs> the leads that we found or the people that we're looking at any more or less guilty. You know, I mean. Here's. Here's the where proof it, is in the pudding. The proof correct. is in the pudding. I focus on those four convictions and those 53, three, I cannot talk, 53 people brought home safe as opposed to what I did back in 1995 that pissed off my best friend at the time. I mean, I just, I don't want to think about that. And if you have time to dredge her up or locate her and find out why she and I aren't Facebook friends anymore, then guess what? Grab a flyer and get to search it. Because you've got too much time on your hands. And I would love to see every one of these trolls actually use their freaking powers for good. Because that's what we choose to do. Every single one of us has the capacity to either be an online troll causing trouble or a justice warrior out there looking for truth. Right. They choose to be the negative and we choose to be the positive. And we are fighting that battle almost on a spiritual level, if you will. And listen, God called us to do this. If we are good enough for God, then we are good enough to do this job. And I don't care who the hell says otherwise. You know, for the last several years, I had to ask people to remind me that I'm a good person. I would say, can you just tell tell me, am I a good person? Tell me I'm a good person. And I caught myself today. I was having a conversation and I was like, you know, tell me. And I was like, wait a minute. I don't need you to tell me I'm a good person. I already know who I am. I already know what I do. Um, and it's, 
anybody who does this work on, on what I call the light level and not the dark level, the positivity versus the negativity, has to understand his or her worth lest they will break us down because that's their intent. Their intent is to break us down. Um, and I'm not quite sure why. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah, I mean, I mean, with everything standing in the way, what is the one thing that keeps you going the most? Oh, oh, that's every win. That's just, um, I know there is a victim in Ohio who sleeps better at night because the, the pedophile is in prison. Um, I know there is a father in Indiana who sleeps better at night because his daughter's killer is serving 50 years. I know there's a victim in, in another state who is sleeping better at night because her molester and rapist is serving a long sentence. Um, those, and I know that there are, there are people I run into in the supermarket who would not be standing in the supermarket if I had not brought them home. From a trafficking situation. That is what does it for me. I have a lot of affirmation from God that this is what I'm meant to do and that no man can stand in the way of his will. Mm -hmm. That and everything that I do, even bounty hunting, I see it as an opportunity to speak love and light into the lives of people who desperately need it. And what, what better person to do that than me? My life has been rocky and look how far I've come with the help of God. And if I can do it, then anyone can. Congratulations to you for, for finding your purpose and knowing Thank why you. you're here. Because... <laughs> you too. Thank you. I mean, you too. Seriously. Not everybody is as lucky as we are. Exactly. Not everybody is as blessed as we are. Not everybody goes through this journey actually figuring out what it is they're supposed to do. Yeah. And so I and I'm, feel very blessed on that. I do too. I really do. You know, speaking only for myself, I just want to say uh, that to me, adversity is the clearest form of confirmation that a person can get. Uh, I'm sorry. Adversity is the clearest form of confirmation that a person can get that they are on the right track. And I believe that the reason that God put this line of work on my heart was because he knew that I could not be bought mm -hmm. and that I would not back down even when faced with intimidation. Mm -hmm. I also believe that there are others like you and I who are charged with the responsibility to stand up and fight for these noble causes, to fight for these victims and to be a, a voice for people that need a voice. We are justice warriors. And on that note, I have a question for our listeners. Are you a justice warrior? If so, please send an email to hmcinvestigations at gmail.com or inbox our HMC Investigations and Fugitive Recovery Facebook page and tell us how you fight for justice. This concludes episode 33 of the Justice Warriors podcast. Until next time, keep fighting for justice.
the light of truth to bring justice to the restless souls whose lives were lost to their hands. Rise up against the evildoers of this world so that their souls may have peace. We will not surrender. 